0: Welcome to First Move this Friday. Plenty to get to, too, before the weekend begins, including a Russian push to annex more of Ukraine. Separatist leaders in four occupied regions of Ukraine now holding referenda on becoming part of Russia. The West calling them sham votes. We'll get the take of NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg in just a few moments' time. And a Russian exodus, long lines of traffic at the borders and airports as citizens rush to leave the country to avoid the military draft announced earlier this week. Plus,
1: it's very nice to actually have somebody financially included, but if it's not actually leading to better lives, then what is the point? Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands joins us later
0: on in the show too to discuss her mission to expand financial inclusion around the world. Now, in the meantime, Wall Street set to tumble further. Take a look at this after a painful week overall for stocks. This is, and I can give you a look at the snapshot for the week so far, but already down around 1.5% pre-market. The Dow down nearly 2.5% even heading into this session. So that's before we add the potential losses of the day to The Nasdaq and the S&P have also lost around 3%, if not more. Investors, of course, remain on edge after the Federal Reserve indicated this week that they'll continue to raise rates even if it leads to a further slowdown in order to tame inflation. And no better news across in Asia as well. More losses in Friday's session. Shares in Hong Kong sank even after the government lifted its long-standing international travel quarantine. Tokyo, Shanghai, and Seoul all closing in the red, as you can see. All right, lots to get to today, and we begin in Ukraine. So-called voting is underway in four Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine. The question: whether to join Russia. Kyiv and the West are calling the whole process a sham. The UK ambassador to Ukraine, Melinda Simmons, tweeting this morning that the outcome of these quote sham referenda is quote almost certainly already decided and called the process a media exercise designed to pursue further and illegal invasion by Russia. The referenda hastily arranged by Russian President Vladimir Putin are taking place in Donetsk and Luhansk and in occupied parts of Kherson and Zaporizhia in the south. Ben Weedman joins us now. Ben, good to have you with us. Inappropriate to call this a vote, really, or, or referenda when the outcome is all but a, a known conclusion. What are the consequences for those living in these regions and, and what next?
2: Well, the consequences are fairly clear. They're going to become Russian citizens. And uh, rec- yes, just yesterday, we were in an area that was under Russian occupation. And you would be very hard-pressed, Julia, to find anybody in those areas who has the slightest desire to live under Moscow's thumb. Anatoly is trying to make his demolished house a home again one nail at a time. But without a roof, plastic sheeting on the windows won't make much of a difference. This is all they could salvage. Anatoly is overwhelmed by what he and his wife Svetlana found when they returned to their village of Prudyanka. (laughs) What can I say, he asks. You can see for yourself. Svetlana was born in this house 53 years ago. Her reaction? Pain, she says, shock, pain, terrible pain and bitterness. The fruits of a life's labor withered on the vine. This is what happened to many of the towns and villages caught on the front lines in this war. They were totally destroyed. Up the road, residents unload relief supplies trucked into the town of Kozaca Mayor Vyacheslav Zadorenko is back in his office after months away. He says these armbands were handed out to the workers in the local Russian-installed administration, food provided to collaborators and newspapers. About 100 people were collaborators, he tells me. When the Russians left, most left with them. Alexander from the mayor's office shows us where town residents were brought for interrogation and torture in a dark basement, as many as 30 people to a cell. Prisoners, he says, were seated in this chair and subjected to electric shocks. Vadim spent a few days there. He recalls his interrogators beat him first, then ask questions. They beat me on my back, my head, then shoved me on the floor and kicked me, he says. Then they gave me a cigarette and started the interrogation. They asked me if I was pro-Ukrainian. I'm Ukrainian, I said. Of course I'm pro-Ukrainian. He was released, but his son Vladimir was taken by the Russians. He's still missing. Vitaly draws water from the neighborhood well. He recalls when Russian soldiers asked if he and his wife had any Nazis at home. <laughs> this is a normal village, he chuckles into retelling. We're farmers and workers. Kozache-Lopan is the last stop on the train line before the Russian border. Soldiers took over the railway station. These are all letters and pictures sent by Russian school children to the soldiers here at the railway station. Got things like this. Pictures. And here's a letter from Alexander in the fifth grade, who says, you are heroes. Thank you for guaranteeing our safe future. Misguided, discarded messages of support for a disastrous war. And regarding the ongoing uh, sham referendum, those four Ukrainian regions, uh, we are seeing on social media, for instance, uh, that... In some areas, people, two ballot voting officials and two armed men are going basically from door to door with a ballot box. Now, the Ukrainian uh, government has called upon residents of the occupied territories not to vote. They say if strangers come to your door, don't answer it. Uh, It appears that, for instance, in some polling stations, there are no voting booths. You have to mark your paper right in front of the officials, in one in the Donetsk region. The ballot is only in the Russian language because the head of the local administration has already decided that Russian is the state language. Julia?
0: Mm. Ben thank you so much for that report there. OK, let's move on to Russia now. Many Russians not welcoming the announced partial military mobilization videos on social media show tearful goodbyes between conscripts and their families. Ukrainian President Zelensky now urging Russians to protest against the move some people simply getting out of the country to avoid being called up. Demand for flights out of Russia has soared as Ivan Watson reports.
3: The days since Vladimir Putin announced a partial mobilization trying to press some 300,000 men into service to go fight in Ukraine we haven't seen parades of Russian Patriots waving flags volunteering to go fight. Instead, we're seeing long lines at Russia's borders with neighboring countries and plane tickets for flights out of Russia completely sold out with the prices skyrocketing. It is clear that some men are voting with their feet, trying to dodge this draft before they can be pressed into this deadly war in Ukraine. The government of Kazakhstan, for example, says that vehicular traffic at its border crossings with Russia have surged some 20 percent since Putin's partial mobilization announcement was made on Wednesday. The border crossing to Georgia uh, is being described by travelers. It's taking some 12, 13 hours to cross that border into Georgia, CNN spoke with one 29-year-old Russian man who arrived by bus in Tbilisi, the Georgian capital, and he said he didn't agree with the war. Half of his family was Ukrainian. Take a listen. Uh, I
4: want to discover the world, and uh, this situation with Ukraine and Russia, it's. I I, I don't believe that uh, in 22 century you you need to fight with someone.
3: The Russian men CNN has been talking to do not want to be identified. They don't want to get in trouble. For example, there's one man who describes himself as a reservist in the Russian military who fled by train to the capital of Belarus, to Minsk. Uh, and he told CNN, I don't support the war. I don't support what's going on. I just decided I have to leave right away. Uh, And we're anecdotally hearing about other Russian men reaching out, trying to find avenues to escape, which again suggests that there are problems when it comes to popular support for putting one's life on the line to fight in the trenches and the battlefields of Ukraine for the Kremlin's war. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong.
0: Okay, let's move on. The British pound slumping European stocks under pressure after the United Kingdom announced sweeping tax cuts and a huge increase in spending and borrowing. The new government says the move will jumpstart growth as the nation grapples with a spiralling cost of living crisis. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, this was being uh, talked about as a mini budget. It's absolutely eye-popping. If if spending and slashing taxes is the way to galvanise growth, and I think the UK's got it nailed, the question is, and, and investors are asking this, how are they going to pay for it?
5: Yeah, that is the big question. And it is laughable that this was being trailed by the British media as a mini budget. It is mega. It's probably the most ambitious fiscal plan that I've ever reported on. I would describe it as a go for broke as much as go for growth plan. Um, A big gamble, essentially. And we can bring you some of the basic highlights and measures. You'll see from this, many of them are tax cuts. And actually, many of those will be targeted at higher earners, for instance, abolishing the highest rate of income tax, uh, removing the cap on bankers' bonuses. You can only imagine uh, the roars from the opposition benches in Parliament when it came to this. But also, a big one is that energy bills will be subsidized. We knew this, but let me show you what this will cost. It comes at a mega cost. According to the Treasury, tax cuts alone will cost £45 billion by 2027, and the energy freeze is going to cost 60 billion pounds over the next six months. Already, the UK's Debt Management Office have upped their planned bond sales for this fiscal year by 62 billion pounds. And because this was a fiscal statement, let's get really technical here. It wasn't called a budget, at least by the government. That is because the Office of Budget Responsibility haven't had a preview of this. So they have yet to give their assessment on what the economic and fiscal impact of this mega plan will be.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been required after Brexit. That the message from this is we're open for business, we're fertile ground for investment, but it's a tough pill to swallow for those that are struggling with the with the cost of living crisis at this moment. And um, I'd call it go for broke or, or go broke trying, quite frankly. <laughs> um, your your point about it being a gamble, I think, is, is very true. Perhaps that's what's required at this moment in time. What's the response been, Anna?
5: Oh, the response. Well, first of all, look at the markets. The pound uh, not. Particularly happy today at a fresh multi-decade low. I know we say that a lot, but it's hit yet another one. Um, and looking at uh, UK bonds, so the gilts, much higher on the expectation, of course, of mega borrowing from the government. Also, I think an expectation here, of course, that you could hear an even more aggressive response from the Bank of England come November for the next rate hike. Uh, and actually, it was interesting looking at the gilt market reaction this morning. The director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, uh, an economic research body, an independent one, simply tweeted. This is worrying. And they see government spending by their estimate, based on what they've had today, as nearly doubling for this fiscal year and over doubling for the next. And there are huge concerns, of course, that this sort of borrowing right now, looking at the economic picture, is unsustainable. I will end there on a positive note. The Confederation of Business Industries said... It is not perfect. It is just the beginning. But there is plenty business can work with. They like, of course, less uh, taxation and less red tape for businesses. Similar from the Institute of Directors, they say it's a good news day for British business. But they do sound the note of caution, like many people today, that until the Office of Budget Responsibility have gone through it and given their assessment, lots of people are sort of holding out in terms of what they think. Julia?
0: Yeah. Good for business as long as it's not considered fiscally entirely irresponsible and that creates a whole new layer of um, of challenges for the country. We shall see. Anna Stewart, thank you very much for that. Okay, straight ahead. Sham referendums and an outcry from the West. We speak to the NATO Secretary General about the situation in Ukraine and beyond after the break. Plus, I sit down with Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands to talk about her mission to promote financial inclusion around the world. Our conversation coming up later on in the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. As we discussed earlier in the show, so-called voting is underway in four Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine on the question of whether to join Russia. The process is taking place in Donetsk and Luhansk, and in occupied parts of Kherson and Zaporizhia in the south. People in those war-torn regions are being asked if they want to join the Russian Federation. A so-called election commission has been appointed to oversee the vote. Kiev and the West are calling the process a sham. And that includes NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg, who said this week the election does not have legitimacy and will only make the situation worse. And I'm pleased to say NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg joins us now. Secretary-General, thank you for joining us on the show. As you said, you see these as a sham vote and will only escalate the situation. What comes next? I think the fear here is that it leads to a situation or claims by Russia that it's now Russian territory being attacked by the West, by Ukraine and by NATO weaponry.
4: Yes, and that's uh, exactly what we need to be prepared for, that uh, Russia will use uh, these uh, shame, uh, shame uh, votes to um, further escalate uh, the uh, war in Ukraine. So it is this combination of the votes uh, in uh, four uh, regions of Ukraine, combined with a partial mobilization that represents a serious escalation of the conflict. But these votes have no legitimacy and, of course, they don't change anything. This continues to be a war of aggression uh, by Russia against Ukraine.
0: What's the message to Ukrainian citizens that are living in these regions if they are under pressure to vote?
4: I support, of course, the message uh, from President uh, Zelensky that they should not uh, take a part in the, these uh, uh, referendums because uh, these are referendums which have been organised uh, uh, also within uh, two, three days uh, in a war zone, and they will be manipulated, and they will not be fair and uh, and uh, and free. They serve one purpose, and that is to uh, uh, give uh, President Putin Russia some excuses for even more violence, even more use of weapons against the sovereign independent nation, Ukraine. Our answer, NATO's answer, is to step up support. Uh, The best way to end this war is to strengthen the Ukrainians on the battlefield further so they can at some stage sit down and and, uh, and reach a solution uh, which is acceptable uh, for uh, Ukraine and that preserves Ukraine as a sovereign independent nation in Europe.
0: In the meantime, President Putin appears to be heading in the opposite direction. He suggested he was mobilizing uh, 300,000 further troops this week. Can you quantify what that will translate to in terms of actual operational troops on the battlefield, particularly in light of the, the limitations, be it equipment, be it the logistics? Have you any sense of what it's actually going to mean on the battlefields?
4: This is a further escalation, but it will take time, uh, and uh, we should not uh, the numbers they are using from the Russian side are not reliable, but of course, by uh, uh, partially mobilizing their armed forces, uh, they, uh, after some time, there will be more Russian troops available. So this will cause more death, more damage, more suffering uh, uh, in Ukraine, among Ukrainians, but also uh, for Russia, and therefore, there are protests against this in Russia. And again, the answer is that uh, this kind of aggressive action by a big power, Russia, against a a smaller neighbor is unacceptable. And therefore, uh, NATO allies, partners have provided unprecedented support to Ukraine over the last uh, months. And we will continue uh, to do so. Uh, I met with the the, uh, Ukrainian foreign minister uh, uh, yesterday. And of course, that was my message to him as it was to President Zelensky when I talked to him earlier.
0: It's not just about protests, though, in Russia. The anecdotal evidence is that people are trying to leave by whatever means they can. Flights, crossing borders in in vehicles. What's NATO's assessment of, of what we're seeing? And I know it's difficult, but do you see the beginnings of a rebellion by the Russian people?
4: Wars, wars are by nature unpredictable, and the consequences uh, also in Russia is hard to predict. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, uh, things may happen there. We see more open protest. We see people speaking out against uh, the war, and I think that's uh, extremely important. We know how difficult that is uh, in the country where you actually risk long sentences just for criticizing uh, the war. Uh, But at the same time, we need to be prepared uh, for the long term. Uh, So, therefore, we are not only providing more support to Ukraine, but we're also ramping up production so we can produce more weapons, more ammunition uh, to continue our support to Ukraine uh, for the long haul.
0: President Putin also discussed once again the potential use of of nuclear weapons. Has anything changed in recent weeks in, in Russia's preparedness and its operational capabilities for the use of nuclear weapons, is it a credible threat in your mind?
4: We have not seen any changes in the uh, the Russian nuclear posture or uh, readiness, Uh, but, of course, this kind of nuclear rhetoric is reckless and dangerous, and what President Putin is trying is to deter the Ukrainians uh, from uh, continuing uh, to fight, to defend their own country, and uh, President Putin uh, tries by using these nuclear threats to deter us, NATO allies and partners, uh, from uh, continuing to provide support to Ukraine. And this is dangerous. And we should never give in to this kind of nuclear blackmailing, because then uh, President Putin and other authoritarian leaders will see that uh, nuclear threats will enable aggressive actions against the neighbors. And that will make the world even more dangerous.
0: Secretary General, you've made that clear on many occasions. Is President Putin being privately warned, whether by yourself, whether by the leaders of other NATO member nations, not to use nuclear weapons? Is he being privately warned?
4: We have communicated, uh, and he uh, needs to know, because this has been stated clearly again and again, uh, that uh, uh, any use of nuclear weapons uh, in Ukraine would totally uh, change the nature of that uh, conflict. Uh, Russia uh, uh, knows that the nuclear war uh, 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 cannot be won and uh, must never be fought and it will have severe consequences for Russia. Uh, this has been communicated to them and uh, we continue to send that very clear message to Moscow.
0: I think the rest of the world, and it's one of the big questions out there, is how would NATO respond in that situation? and. You've never made it clear. I think it's very difficult for anybody to make it clear. Have the consequences been made clear to to President Putin?
4: They know that there will be severe consequences. Uh, Then I will not elaborate exactly on how we will react. That depends a bit on uh, uh, what kind of weapons of mass destruction they may use. Uh, We are sending these messages and we're making this clear to prevent that from happening. Uh, and, uh, And the thing is that for the likelihood of any use of nuclear weapons uh, are uh, still, uh, or is still uh, uh, low, but the potential consequences are so big, so therefore we have to take this uh, threat serious, and the rhetoric, the threats that President Putin are putting forward actually uh, again and again, uh, uh, increased tensions are dangerous and are reckless.
0: And Secretary General, can I bring it forward to the meetings that you've had this week, and I know you met with the Chinese foreign secretary. And there seemed to be, at least on the surface, a tone shift after the meetings between President Putin and President Xi in Uzbekistan last week, criticism, perhaps from from the Chinese, even the Indians. Uh, I'll add them into the, the equation here, too. Is your sense from either of those nations that they're prepared to be and push for a solution here push Russia towards a solution. Yeah, so, so
4: far, um, uh, China has uh, not uh, condemned the, the brutal invasion of uh, Ukraine. They didn't vote in favor of that uh, uh, resolution in the UN uh, General Assembly uh, so, uh, just after the, uh, the invasion. Uh, so my main message uh, to China yesterday, to the Chinese foreign minister, was that China should use uh, its significant influence in Moscow to uh, end uh, Russia's senseless uh, war uh, in uh, Ukraine and we also see in the closer partnership between uh, Russia and uh, and uh, China we see the joint we saw the joint statement uh, between President Xi and President uh, Putin uh, uh, just before the invasion where China for the first time actually addressed uh, NATO enlargement and and called on NATO to stop enlargement so Uh, Our answer is that, of course, every sovereign nation in Europe has the right to choose some path, including whether it would like to be a member of the alliance, NATO or not. And therefore, we welcome Finland and Sweden as our new uh, members.
0: You know better than um, most of us that, that what China says and what China does can often be two very separate things. But I think reading between the lines of what you're saying is we are no further, no closer to having China, even privately, putting pressure on Russia to end this war. Is that correct?
4: We haven't seen uh, the, uh, the clear messages uh, from uh, China that we are calling for, but we will continue to engage with uh, China. Um, uh, China is uh, a growing economic and military uh, power. Uh, we don't regard China as an adversary, uh, but, of course, we are concerned when we see their uh, strong military buildup and their closer ties with uh, Russia.
0: And a final question, Secretary General, and I, I do thank you for your time. Much of the discussion this week at the United Nations has been about spillover effects, uh, inflation, food price crises, the challenges for ordinary citizens wherever they are in the world beyond the pain and suffering of of the citizens of Ukraine at this moment. Is there any doubt in your mind that that NATO nations can continue to hold together in the face of of domestic challenges, of of political pressure? And we've already seen it with government changes in, in Italy and the United Kingdom, for example. Can NATO hold together, however bad, the the consequences?
4: Yes, we have demonstrated that, uh, not only in words, but actually in deeds. uh, What NATO allies have done and partners have done is to impose impose sanctions on Russia, sanctions uh, at the scale and scope we haven't seen before and allies continue to provide uh, unprecedented uh, military, economic, financial support to Ukraine. Because this is about Ukraine, but it's also about our own security. Mm. If President Putin wins in Ukraine, uh, that will uh, make us more vulnerable, and the message will be that by use of force he can achieve his goals. Um, Of course, we are approaching winter, and that will be a hard winter with high energy prices, uh, high inflation, and we are paying a price. But the price we are paying in NATO uh, is a price we can measure in in currency, in money, in dollars and euros, uh, while the price the Ukrainians are paying uh, is measured in lives, uh, lives lost every day. So, yes, it is hard. Yes, we pay a price. But the alternative uh, to let Putin win, then we need to pay a much, much higher price, and therefore we need to continue support Ukraine. Mm.
0: Every citizen needs to remember the relative costs and the price being paid. Secretary-General, thank you so much for your time. The NATO Secretary-General there, Jens Stoltenberg, so thank you once again. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are opening sharply lower as anticipated on this Friday, as the pain fueled by the Federal Reserve continues. The Dow now dropping below the 30,000 level, as you can see, they're off by more than 1% at the start of the session. Wall Street on track for the fifth decline in the last six weeks. Shares of FedEx falling after the firm announced it will raise shipping rates by nearly 7%. That's inflation in action. And Boeing stock also sinking after agreeing to pay $200 million for misleading the public about the safety of the 737 MAX. To pull this all together for us, Rahal Solomon joins us now. Rahal, these are not irrational moves to me. And it goes right back to the conversation you and I We're having yesterday about the sheer Mm. uncertainty about the future.
6: Absolutely right. And what you're seeing this morning is yet another Powell punch, as you pointed out, the Dow uh, looking set at least right now to uh, fall below 30,000. If, in fact, it closes below 30,000, Julia, that would be the first time since mid-June. June. Remember when we were talking about the lows of the year. So that is really interesting. But Julia, this comes in a week where we have heard from practically 12 central banks. It has been uh, an incredibly active week on the central bank front, including Right here in the U.S., with the Federal Reserve announcing that it uh, has decided to raise interest rates another three quarters of one percent, as you and I have talked about, Julia, that is not something we have seen in modern history. It has to go back to the early '80s to see the last time the Federal Reserve raised rates at that magnitude and at that pace. And it wasn't just the rate hikes that have clearly spooked investors. It was the projections, what the Fed sees coming just right around the corner there, right? U.S. GDP for the year, uh, projections now just eking out any positive growth at 0.2 percent. I think the last projection, Julia, was 1.7 the last time we got a projection in June. Uh, U.S. unemployment, that is expected to rise from the current 3.7 to 4.4. So that is saying a lot. Now, all of this leading investors to feel while a recession is feeling pretty evident, right? It's feeling pretty uh, inevitable. To that, uh, Jay Powell, the chairman, saying no one knows whether this process will lead to a recession. So it really is a big mystery, not just here in terms of how we get out of this here in the U.S., but many economies around the world. But if there is one thing for sure we know investors don't like, it's uncertainty. And you're seeing that reflected in the market right now.
0: Yeah, there's nothing comfortable about a central bank hiking into an economic slowdown and we're seeing it happen all over the world and there's no balancing force um, except governments and they're spent up. Rahel Solomon, thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands has been seeing for herself how the digital economy is making life better for those who need it most. We'll hear about Her Majesty's work next. Welcome back to First Move and for now moving beyond the debate around Russia, Ukraine and the spillover effects at the United Nations General Assembly and to another subject that I feel very passionately about and that's progress on financial inclusion and improving in financial literacy around the world. This has been the mission of the United Nations Secretary General's Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance for over a decade. Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands is a proponent for universal access to affordable, effective and safe financial services and how to get there. And while the pandemic has left dark clouds over many economies, perhaps one of the silver linings has been a dramatic rise in digital payments and greater access to basics like bank accounts, as we discussed.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having us, and uh, not me in particular, but for the whole issue on the subject of financial inclusion, which is really so important for so many people around the world, even here in the United States. So when I started my job around 2011, we were actually having something like 50% of the world population were financially included. What do we mean by that? They actually have an access to having a bank account in which they can get payments, make savings, borrow, invest in opportunities, get an insurance in case there's a risk. Um, but that was not possible for many, many people, as you know. And now the last figures actually show 76%. So in 10 years, we actually got a quarter of the world population to actually have access to financial services and actually more and more use them. So this is really a big success, extremely happy. you also track
0: resilience and the number of people that actually in an emergency can't get access to financial resources within a 30-day window. And I believe it's 55 percent, around 55 yeah. percent of people are still struggling in certain parts of the world. And, and that's a problem. Even if you have
1: the financial tools, if you don't have the financial resources, you can't access them. Yeah. So um, financial inclusion is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. So in the end of the day, you don't become better by being financially included. What you want is a financial health that actually through these tools, people can actually have better uh, ways of actually being able to affront the day to day expenses they actually have and responsibilities, being able to invest in the future, being able to affront a shock. When, you know, something like climate change happens or, you know, your husband dies and, you know, you, you have to sort of, you know, some three years until you get a job, being able to have some savings to be able to you know, pay for the food of your kids and the school of your kids and not having financial stress which is also a very big issue. So these four points are actually very important on the financial health perspective. And yes, we have been trying to uh, um, track that you know, recently, and we're going to continue to track that to see and monitor how that actually develops. And what are the types of products and services that we have to develop going forward to help these four issues? Because it's very nice to actually have somebody financially included, but if it's not actually leading to better lives, then what is the point? I've been watching
0: very closely some of the work that you've been doing in Senegal. And it was, I believe, female farmers, um, a product called MyAgro and... To your point, the the challenge of managing things like climate change at a time when you're also trying to manage finances, higher fertilizer prices. Talk to me about some of those female farmers that you met.
1: So you know, first of all, I was so happy to be there because <laughs> in the end of the day, I've been doing so much work, you know, during COVID, but it was all through Zoom, and you do not really get the feeling of it. And finally seeing the clients because that's the reason I'm actually doing yeah, all I this know. work for. And uh, the many examples I saw, but one of them, yes, was this my Agro, and um, basically these women can actually. To so do little investments, uh, savings through the mobile phones, which is only allowed to do through the mobile phones. And by the way, by the time they actually get some investment, the, the savings they can actually invest in better seeds, better irrigation. Therefore, the yields go up, the income goes up. And if there's a drought or too much rain, they know how to deal with it. So extremely important for all these women that actually are, you know, 50 percent. They are the smaller farmers in Africa, and this type of issues of financial inclusion and this whole resilience on the whole financial growth is so important because if we look at the farmers in Africa, we need to increase their yield. That's where the poor people are. Yeah. But not only that, if we want, if Africa wants to be less uh, import dependent, they will have to invest in the farmers. All the, you know, what we've actually seen with the war and the imports and the, the mm. basic the dependence on the imports they actually had for food. Well. We need to invest in the African food production. And that means not only in small farmers, the whole value chain needs to be digitized. The whole value chain needs to be in a system in which you know you can actually assure that actually the whole system becomes much more productive. And that is investing also in financial inclusion and insurance and ways of actually access to markets, and that's what digitization has a fantastic opportunity.
0: Another example in the Ivory Coast, I know you were there looking at nut farmers as well and having yeah. a platform where they can track exports and understand what their business looks like too. To the same point, it's all about building resilience and it's actually you going there and meeting these people and understanding exactly what they need.
1: Yeah, and showing examples to leaders and private sector right. that you know these systems can work and what a potential it actually has. You do have to invest in distribution. How it's, it's a different mindset. But how do I actually get everybody in, giving them the right input so that I can and actually give them the right access to markets so the whole value chain is actually you know, be much much stronger, and, and, and you know, in the end of the day, increase the livelihoods of these people, and at the same time, macroeconomically, uh, really help the countries as well.
0: While in, and while I have you in the United States, as you were pointing out, and as I'm very aware as well, I think we had 40% of Americans that couldn't write a $500 check coming into the pandemic. So when you talk about financial literacy, financial health. We can emphasize the point that this is not just a developing market issue, it's a developed market issue too.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, we know the OECD respondents, 50% said they had no money left at the end of the month. So this is a very big issue. Even in the Netherlands, mm. you know, we have, uh, you know, six, six, this is before the whole inflation started, 600,000 households with, you know, problematic debts and now 1.4 million households in, in in situation of stress in some way. This is going to become only sort of worse with inflation. So Mm. we really need to look at this point. So uh, we are working, at least in the Netherlands, we are working not only in how to help them budget and, you know, getting out of debts and also getting out the taboos, because it takes five years for a family in the Netherlands to actually ask for help when they're in situations of debt five years because they think they can do it together they don't want to be dependent they want to be independent and so it takes them five years and it's a pity because had they actually asked for help before the amount of debt would have been much less so we're trying to do these things in the Netherlands it is a very difficult moment geopolitically
0: it's a difficult moment for, for individuals as you mentioned within the inflation crisis and the challenges too are there reasons for hope though based on what we were discussing about the, the, the efforts that have been made and the individual stories that you've seen?
1: Well, I think that um, the digital part has actually given a lot people a lot of empowerment, yeah. getting access to information, getting access to services. But then we have to make sure that this is actually in a sustainable, safe and competitive way. What do I mean by that? So one thing that I've been fighting for is the issue of digital public goods. If you don't have connectivity, then... The poor people are not going to have sort of access to. If they don't have a, an ID and a digital ID, they cannot open an account. Right. If we don't have interoperable payment systems, it's not going to be a competitive system that really is going to help them. If we don't have cybersecurity issues then you know may actually fall into, you know, losing their money. If we don't have some kind of digital literacy, which I also find as part of the digital public goods, people are not going to be able to really reap all the benefits from the, that digitization. So. We need to have a better focus on the digital public goods in every country and infrastructure that needs to be in place so that people really, this big opportunity that's being given by digital you know, life and infrastructure, that we can actually reap the benefits and everybody reap the benefits. So you're just getting started. That's the message. Well, <laughs> no, I think a lot of work is, needs to be done. And, and I think that it's very important that we actually talk about these issues. Yeah, I
0: agree. Queen Maxima, thank you so much. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Really of the Netherlands, there. Okay, up next, a two city concert for change. Metallica, Mariah Carey, and Stormzy. Just some of the stars joining forces with Global Citizen to fight poverty and more. We speak to the CEO of Global Citizen next. Welcome back to First Move. A global Citizen aims to eradicate extreme poverty by 2030. The international advocacy platform says it's distributed over $41 billion and impacted more than 1 billion lives over the past 10 years. This year alone, it says it secured 88 million vaccine doses and mobilized over $10 billion in pledges to support Ukraine and those who fled the country. That is a lot to celebrate, which is why the organization marks its 10th anniversary tomorrow with a festival across two major cities, fans in New York Central Park and the Black Star Square in Accra, Ghana, we'll be able to see stars including Mariah Carey, Stormzy and Metallica to name just a few. The aim is to raise awareness of causes including education for girls and debt relief. Joining us now, Hugh Evans, co-founder and CEO of Global Citizen. Hugh, fantastic to have you on the show. Needless to say, I'm very excited about what's going on. Just in a nutshell, explain the ethos behind Global Citizen and the importance of two cities this time around.
7: Well, firstly, thank you so much, Julia, for having me on your show this morning. Really, Global Citizen is the world's largest movement of citizens taking action to end extreme poverty and tackle climate change within our lifetime. And this year marks our 10th anniversary. So we're bringing Global Citizen simultaneously to Accra, Ghana in West Africa, and also New York City to coincide with the UN General Assembly meeting with the world's greatest artists united to end extreme poverty. But the thing that makes Global Citizen unique is that you don't buy a ticket to Global Citizen. Your actions are your currency. And so we're inviting people all around the world to download the Global Citizen app and use your actions to call on world leaders to make multi-billion dollar pledges for the eradication of extreme poverty within our lifetime.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you that. What does it take actually to be a Global Citizen? You've you've partially answered that. What does it actually mean because to your point, we, we often discuss these issues, whether it's, it's climate change, whether it's debt believed to allow some of the poorest nations in the world to afford things, to, to effectively pivot their economies, to, to tackle things like mitigate climate change. But we don't often see the solutions in practice. What does it take to be a global citizen? And, and what also I think makes you unique is you're targeted on the solutions, not just the talk.
7: Absolutely. Yeah. So firstly, for me, being a global citizen means that you're not just a member of your individual state or your individual tribe or your nation, but you're a member of the human race and you're willing to act on that belief to tackle the world's greatest challenges. And I think right now we've seen it when it when it relates to, say, the COVID-19 pandemic or the war in Ukraine or the global economic downturn, that all of these issues affect all of the globe at once. So While we like to think that we might be able to, you know, erect bigger walls, it's just simply not the case in the modern economy. We need to embrace the fact that we're all interconnected and address these issues collectively because climate change doesn't know any boundaries. It's not going to respect any of your false boundaries. And so we want to encourage people to actually address these issues collectively. And like you said, Julia, we're focused on the solutions. And I think the example of climate change is a great one because You know, we're seeing some nations around the world stepping up and addressing the challenges of climate change and fulfilling their promises under the Paris Climate Change Accord. Whereas here in the United States, while the U.S. has reentered the Paris Climate Change Accord, they are yet to follow through on their $11 billion per year commitment to actually help the poorest nations adapt to the devastating effects of climate change. And so we need to address these issues collectively. That's why we need every nation to step up. And one other good example is the UK government right now. We need Liz Truss, the new prime minister, to step up and support the Global Fund to fight HIV, AIDS, malaria and tuberculosis. This is another disease that affects everyone around the world and we need the prime minister to step up and support the Global Fund's replenishment because... Many other nations like Canada and the European Commission have stepped up and increased their pledges by 30 percent. And we need the UK to do the same.
0: OK. I mean, Hugh, you're in New York. All of these leaders, they were here at the United Nations General Assembly. Did you manage to speak to these people? Were you pushing them? What was your sense of um, going beyond the talk and the promises and actually taking action? What's your sense walking away from these meetings? Are you, are you more enthused? Are you, are you fearful about a lack of leadership? let's be honest?
7: It's a great question. I think that, you know, it really is a mixed bag. I Mm. I spent time with Prime Minister Trudeau a few nights ago and with President von der Leyen of the European Commission. And I was impressed with how they were stepping up to support the Global Fund. Both of them increased their pledges to combat HIV, AIDS, malaria and tuberculosis. But I also saw some leaders that seemed completely tone deaf to the reality of what the challenges the world is facing. They seem to be focused just on military might, not on using soft power and diplomacy to actually address these issues head on. And I think that when it comes to international development, you can't turn your back on the fact that, you know, many people don't want to flee their home nations and become refugees. They're often forced into these situations. So unless we address these issues collectively, I saw some leaders that really were focused just on military might, In Liz Truss's speech she focused just on military power. I thought that was a massive missed opportunity for the UK government.
0: Oh, I was going to ask you to name names here. Anybody else? I guess Liz Truss is in a situation where she's trying to sort of plant her place as a, as a brand new leader in a country. But I agree with you. There is a huge war in Ukraine going on and there are huge spillover effects that everybody's facing. But many of these problems a food crisis, climate crisis were there before and they'll be there after. Um,
7: And and I think in that instance, Julia, I think that, you know, David Cameron, really under the former conservative leadership in Britain, put forward 0.7 percent of gross national income as the bastion of how much the UK should give, because British people are very generous people and they want to be leaders on the global stage. And they have been historically. Then under Boris Johnson, obviously, he walked that back and went down to 0.5. And I think Liz Truss has an opportunity, as you just said, to assert leadership in her own right and not be bound by what other leaders have done, but actually say, you know what? Britain can be a global part of the global community. We can play a really important role. And, and I think that's going to gonna require. Yeah, it's, it needs um, to be. Absolutely. I'm being told
0: to. I'm being told to wrap. We'll reconvene on this. I tell you what, the British people and a lot of people do is like to party, and there's going to be people there, not only celebrating, of course, in in Accra and New York City this weekend, but to your point, also, just focusing on being a better global citizen, and we all need to do that. I think, Hugh, absolutely. Good luck. Hopefully, I'll see you tomorrow, <laughs> the co-founder oh, yeah. and CEO of Global Citizen. Thank you, Hugh. And that's it for the show. Connect the world. It's up next.